I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Trees bound to one spot for decades, if not generations, often bind to our minds in much the same way. The key trees of our childhoods root deep into our memories, becoming part of the fabric of our lives. They're seemingly unchanging structures that bring us back to a place and an era. There was one significant tree for me that really stood out, and it was an oak tree that was on a little green in front of our house. And that oak tree was the place that I wasn't allowed to go beyond. And also, it was where all of us kids would meet. It's where we'd play Tim Tom Tammy, which is a 1970s version of sort of hide and seek. Everything in our playing area revolved around that tree. I just always loved being in trees. It was my sort of escape. So I used to throw myself out of a, a bendy pine tree because I knew I could bounce from branch to branch all the way to the bottom uh, and would delight in the shrieks of my mother as I she thought I was dying. Um, that's terrible, really. Sometimes after school, we decide, yeah, we meet up at the apple tree. There are plenty of apple tree, but everybody knew it was that particular apple tree. And in the autumn, we were sitting there eating fruits and just hang out. There was a big, proud apple tree that could have like 15 kids in Tree Crown. And uh, it's still there. Trees are incredible in many respects. They grow taller than any other organisms and live on a time scale that is incomprehensible when compared to our meagre lifespans. Some redwoods, for example, stretch upwards of 100 metres and a clonal colony of quaking aspens in Utah is estimated to be over 10,000 years old. And on top of the ore they evoke, they're absolutely critical to our ecosystems, sequestering carbon, reducing flood risks, minimising pollution, creating habitats for wildlife, and much, much more. So in this week's show, we're exploring the entangled wonder of the arboreal world, getting a behind-the-scenes look at what trees are up to now and chatting about how best to incorporate and care for them within our gardens. Tree wizard Nick Dunn is back on the podcast to talk crab apples. Forester and author Dr. Gabriel Hemery is lifting the veil on what on earth is happening with trees at this time of year. And finally, garden designer Arid Anderson and scientist Dr. Henry Coyerman discuss what to keep in mind when choosing what to plant. You're listening to Gardening with the RHS with me, Guy Barter. For almost 50 years, tree nurseryman Nick Dunn has been working at Frank P. Matthews, a nursery started by his grandfather over 100 years ago. 
Nick knows more about trees than just about anyone and is here to chat about one of his favourites, the crab apple. First of all, crab apple trees are very long lived. They have very diverse features throughout the year, most of which you would logically realise would be flower and fruit, so the attraction of both. And also some of them, some of the more recently introduced cultivars have got a good autumn colour as well. And to have three features in any tree, woody plant, throughout the year is quite unusual. So I would say they're very good value in that regard. They're very robust. They give form and shape into gardens. They're attractive for wildlife and they are very, very reliable. Once they're planted, they will survive in any conditions in the UK, suitable for a range of soils, both acidic and alkaline. They are just a tree for all occasions. The fruit is hugely variable, from the small to the large, from colours that range from intense green through the yellow spectrum, pink blushes, red blushes, and into intense dark red skin. And when you cut them, the flesh is very, very varied in colour between white, pure white, through to extremely dark red in, in some cases. And what's probably most interesting for most people is how persistent they can be. Some of the earlier crab apples will drop off fairly quickly in September, but you'll have some that will last all the way through into March and still sit on the tree uh, feeding birds all the way through winter because they're so hard, some of them, that they don't deteriorate at all. Now the blossom is the other wonderful variable characteristic that they have. Not only in timing, it's interesting if you take the whole of the crabapple family, they flower over a five-week period, which is quite long, almost replicating apples from the early flowering to the late flowering. And the blossoms range from very simple flowers, five petal, simple white flowers, small, star-shaped, all the way through to densely double pink flowers and everything in between. So most people probably wouldn't realise that some of the crab apples are actually double-flowered and we've got quite a few of outstanding ones in particular, like Scarlet Brandywine, which is a densely double pink and it also sets fruit which is quite unusual for double flowers, which are generally infertile. But because of the modern hybridising, some of the newer varieties are actually quite extraordinary in their beauty, both in flower size and also fruit size as well. If you have a small garden, my top recommendations would be the very small, slim, fastidiate forms like uh, Laura, and Aros. Laura is one of the few flowers that is two-toned in colour. It's got a white centre with a red outer petal 
Aros is very similar, but it has a slight improvement in the foliage because it's almost very black when it first emerges and stays dark purple all the way through to the autumn with lovely autumn tints. If you go to a little bit more space, I would recommend Wedding Bouquet, which is a form of Brevipes, and that is very slim, upright, doesn't grow particularly fast, and is suitable for smaller spaces. But when it comes to space and crab apples, it's really important to remember they can be pruned hard if needed. They can be shaped to whatever shape you wish to have them. They can be espalier trained, they can become planted as cordons. We also grow a range of the crab apples on dwarf rootstock. Because they share their genetics with apples, we use the same rootstocks with crab apples as we do with apple trees. So you can get what would be normally a very vigorous uh, variety. If you put it onto M27 dwarf rootstock, you can reduce the tree by two thirds in terms of size. So you don't have to be restricted or put off by what is essentially a vigorous tree because it, it may well be available on the, on the dwarf rootstock. The species are worth mentioning because they are inherently, naturally resistant to disease. Hybridizing actually increased the susceptibility to scab in crab apples, so we're very careful when it comes to cultivars to actually choose the ones which are resistant to um, scab disease or uh, what we would call rose black spot and so on. It's a related uh, fungal disease. But generally, if you look at the species, they are virtually all resistant to disease. And in their own right, very, very beautiful. If I was to mention one in isolation, it would be Transitoria, Malus Transitoria. It's the most beautiful flower, very graceful tree, persistent, small, attractive yellow fruit. Very good trees in their own right. As a single tree, I think they bring a huge amount of joy. I can't really say any more than that. It's just the, the joy of the variability of them, huge diversity within that one genera and species and cultivar range. It's just very satisfying. Nick wrote an article for the October issue of The Garden magazine aptly named How Do You Like Them Crab Apples? You can read it on the RHS The Garden app. I adore crab apples, but I'm very lucky. The council have planted many crab apples all down my street as street trees on a very wide grassy verge, so I don't have to grow any crab apples. Instead, I can plant some of my other favourite trees, one of which is the medlar. It produces big hawthorn-like fruits that you eat when they're almost rotten. Bit of an acquired taste, but it also has lovely flowers and autumn colour, and the fruits are pretty as well. I'm also fond of a group of trees called amelanchias. They flower early in the spring, they sometimes have fruits, and they always have autumn colour. And unlike many trees, they stay quite small. They won't grow much above eight metres at most. One of the great things about trees, as Nick mentioned with crab apples, is their seasonal journey each year. 
the blossoms and budding of leaves in the spring, lush greenery in summer, autumn colour and fruit, and bare structural branches in winter. Dr Gabriel Henry loves the annual cycle so much that he's just written The Tree Almanac 2024, a seasonal guide to the woodland world. His almanac is a thorough celebration of what's going on with trees and the plant and animal life that depend on them through each month of the year. And he's here to give us a taste of the book with a delightful description of all the exciting things happening with the arboreal sphere right now. I mean, perhaps you might think of this time of year as being the end. I suppose I'd like to look at it as the beginning because actually what's happening is the, the trees are getting ready for the next season and quite soon they'll be starting their root growth again. So we're, we're entering this dormancy period, but it's, a, it's like a kind of pregnancy really. So it's not that life has stopped, it's just it's paused. And I, I think it's a lovely time you know, to be out walking in the park or in the garden or in, in, in a woodland and just seeing the trees when they're in their sort of bare glory, you can kind of read them like you can a book. You can see how they've been impacted by gales of the past and nesting birds and feeding animals and drilling woodpeckers. And it all becomes apparent and readable in, in front of your eyes in a way that when everything's lush and covered in leaves in the, in the summer, you, you can't. So I love this time of year. And of course, there's the really obvious stuff like uh, fungi appearing and keep an eye out for the ever-resourceful jay and other of the crow family like magpies who are out there collecting particularly acorns, stashing them away uh, under trees and in the park and garden, ideally for their, their larder for the winter, but they might forget some of them and they'll turn into our next generation of oak trees. The other thing I'm really passionate about are the, you know, the, the lower plants, so lichen and mosses and, and liverworts and we can use them for survival so look on the north side uh, and that's where you'll find the mosses because they're hiding from the sun so you should always know where north is if you find a mossy side to a tree if you're lucky enough to live or go on holiday towards the west of britain or an island keep a lookout for uh, our most amazing and precious habitat known as temperate rainforest and there amongst the mostly oak and some of our other native broadleaves, you'll find a whole raft of unusual lichens and, and mosses and liverworts. They're quite difficult to, to actually identify, to be honest, I struggle anyway. You often need a hand lens like a magnifying glass to do it and a good field guide. But some are more obvious. There's one called the tree lungwort and it has quite big leafy lobes. They look like leaves, but they're actually not. But that's a, a real temperate rainforest specialist, which if you see that, you know the air is really clean this is a spectacular time to go, as the Canadians and Americans call it, leaf peeping. I don't know why we don't have that term here. I love the term leaf peeping. It just, it's quite evocative, isn't it? You know, just to really enjoy and celebrate the colour that we see as the trees turn from their summer foliage. So as they withdraw the chlorophyll, um, which is the green pigment in the leaves, that exposes the other pigments like xanthophyll, yellows and browns and oranges. And that's why we see this colour. You don't always know what sort of year it would be for colour. It depends on climate and things like that. But of course, some trees are really spectacular and the famous ones would be some of the maples. And again, in North America, it's the sugar maples, red maples that really are really dramatic. And in the garden, you can plant some of those in small pots to enjoy their colour. Out in the forest, you know, some of our more exotic species like uh, tulip tree, which is from North America, and that can go beautiful yellow and some red oaks, but certainly have a look in the hedges. I think one of the most dramatic 
trees at this time of year is the spindle and it's got the most amazing bright pink fleshy fruits and a really interesting shape like in three bulbous sort of shape and you crack them open or they open by themselves and inside are bright orange berries uh, and as the leaves turn from green to yellow the spindles are the most amazing bush in our, in our hedgerows uh, and another one is the Gelder Rose, which is the native species of Viburnum, which there's lots of Viburnums planted in our gardens, but they tend to be cultivars. Gelder Rose is the native species, and they have beautiful glossy red berries at this time of year, you know, even before the leaves turn. So together with Spindle, in a nice native hedge, they produce a spectacular show at this time of year. Planting trees is definitely a good time of year to start thinking about this. In your garden, of course, you can buy, if it's just one tree, you can maybe afford a bigger one, in which case it will come in a, a plant pot. And the critical thing with that is just look really carefully at the quality of the tree. Make sure it's not just being put in a big pot and not really grown and filled out that pot just to make it look bigger in, in the nursery. So make sure that it looks healthy. And when you get it home, take the plant pot off and try and release those roots. If they have been in that plant pot for a while they could be bound so very gently tease out the roots make sure you don't put a effectively a root shaped plant pot into the ground where the roots of the tree will stop those other roots from inside growing out it's sort of like a self-fulfilling disaster that it can't sort of get beyond its original shape dig a big big hole twice as wide and deep as the roots nice and loose Put some compost in if you've got some, ideally perhaps leaf mould from the last year and get the tree in the ground and give it lots of water if you get any droughts that first year till it's well established. So it's not rocket science and, and just treat it with a bit of love and they'll, they'll grow for sure. A lot of the trees you would think about pruning over the winter. So it's a bit like the same idea with planting trees when they're dormant. If you prune a tree when it's actively growing, most trees don't like that and they'll weep a lot from their sap. They'll allow pests and pathogens perhaps to come into the tree because you've damaged the bark when it's growing. So the advice is generally to prune in the winter. If there's still leaves on the tree, for most trees you shouldn't be pruning. So I'd wait till all those leaves are gone. So yeah, it's a great time of year, I think, you know, and I love watching the wildlife and looking forward to welcoming some of our winter visitors. So sad to say goodbye to the swallows, but great to say hello to the filfares and redwings, which are soon coming over from Scandinavia. And if you're really lucky, some of our more unusual birds like the woodcock that comes in with the woodcock moon in November and also the short-eared owl, which is a really special visitor. So yeah, lots to see and lots to still be happy and celebrate this time of year. That was Gabriel Henry. A Tree Almanac 2024 comes out on the 9th of November. You can pre-order the book in our show notes. Around this time of year, we get tons of hits on the RHS website about pruning. But it's a little early to wield your secateurs and saw right now. As Gabriel said, wait until the leaves have fallen. The trees will then be dormant and they've stored their resources away in the roots so that you can cut them off without weakening them and they'll regrow strongly in the spring. Evergreens don't actually go dormant in the way that deciduous trees and shrubs do and so wait until spring to prune them. If you prune them in the autumn or winter there's not much leaf to support the roots that are not dormant 
and they could take harm from that. For deciduous plants, most of them will be prunable in the winter. Typically, the kind of things that you do in the winter is you go through the fruit garden and you prune the black currants very hard and you prune the red currants and gooseberries lightly and then you renovate hedges, deciduous hedges like beech that become overgrown can be cut back very hard in the winter and you can also prune apples and pears, of course, in the winter. What we do at Wisley is we prune out a branch or two each year to its point of origin. Some plants tend to bleed, vines in particular, grapevines, and those I would prune as soon as the leaves have fallen. The joy of winter pruning is that you can see the shape of your trees. And so as you work, it's a very good idea indeed to step back and look at your tree at frequent intervals, because although it's easy enough to cut things out, you can't put stuff back and you might end up having to look at some cut that you regret for a whole year or even more. And finally, for our last story, we're diving deep into what trees are good for and what to consider when choosing one for your garden. Tree expert and professor Dr Henrik Holman and garden designer and presenter Arit Anderson just published an epic tome of a book together called The Essential Tree Selection Guide. And they're joining us today to give a little preview. Trees are beings that are often on this planet before we arrive and often on this planet after we've gone. They are the lungs of the world, as we all know. They're the life givers through their oxygen. Whenever anybody feels wavery, you think of a tree, you think of its deep roots, you think about being really strong. Everyone says to you to make sure that you stand like a big oak or a big elm tree and that gets buffeted through all seasons. And, and that's why I think we should be reconnected to them. I realised that from a design perspective, most of the books out there were pretty geared toward height spread and you know seasonal colour, what flowers or fruit that they offered. And that was really about it. And I felt that there was more to it than that. And I knew that obviously to research a book that would talk more of that would take a lot of time. And thankfully, I had seen Henrik do a talk. And the talk that Henrik did about trees and the functionality of trees and what they offer, it really, really woke me up. He talked about how trees invest in themselves, how they work, how to just like this new language that he's talking about. It just completely woke me up. And that's for me how it came about to be able to really stretch the thinking about how trees operate and to bring it into a succinct book that would be accessible to landscape professionals, but also to the public. When we talk about houses or computers, or even cars, we can talk about how good they are, what's the capacity, and we've combined these two materials with each other, we can gain this and this. That kind of language is missing when it comes to garden design and tree selection or plant selection. And we need to develop that kind of language because the knowledge is actually there. We just need to put it together and bridge it over from ecology, biology and plant physiology into a more easy understanding way for plant use and plant selection. So normally you can divide the ecosystem service in, in four categories like supporting ecosystem, which um, it's a lot. That's actually the most important ecosystem. So because they create habitats for other plants and animals to exist, but also they create oxygen. They also 
improve the soil quality of the site during many generations of trees. So the productivity of many soils around the world is thanks for the trees there. And then we have the provisioning ecosystem services, which is how trees and tree planting can also create food. They also produce medicine for us and others. And then you have cultural ecosystem services, which have been a little bit behind, but nowadays we can quantify the value that trees have, how they can lower our stress levels, how important they are for us to just feel good, to actually work well in this stressful environment we are. The last uh, category is regulating ecosystem service, how trees can lower the temperature by shading, how they can increase the outdoor environment by reducing cold winds in the winter, how they can, through filtering air and by doing that, take out particles and increase the, the air quality, and also carbon sequestration. So this is just a few examples, but there is a catalogue of benefits we can have for tree and tree planting. And I think also when garden owners are thinking about tree selection or any plant selection, but trees obviously are a, a big investment and they are there for the long term. So you have to really know your site. You have to really understand there's one thing about what you want, which is really important, but then you've got to marry it up with what I've got. So if it's a case of saying, oh, I really love olive trees and I want to be able to plant olives, well, that's great but not if you've got a garden that's quite boggy and really wet and doesn't drain well. So the two things that have to marry up is understanding what you have, what you would like, and then importantly, which is a bit I think that this book is really able to help people understand, is but what does that tree need in terms of its environment to, to be able to survive? And what we have to do is look back at what strategies they use to grow and that is often driven by that where they're placed in the world and the environment that they grow up in, if you like. If you talk about succession, for example, there are trees that after a forest fire, they are the one that goes in directly to take that new open space and just go for it. But then there are late successional species who need that protection. They can't take this exposed site and the weed competition. They want to be in sheltered inside this protected forest. So they normally entering the forest succession very late, like 100 years after the forest fire. But if we just have that species force it on the front side of a house on the lawn and the plant just are shocked, shocked to death, or just doesn't perform well. And then it's written in books like, oh, perform badly, it's not recommended. But that's only because we're forcing that specimen into a situation I have no idea how to handle. Instead, we maybe should have it on the backside where we already have some big trees and planting underneath, protected it, and suddenly we get a completely different development. So just understanding the timing when they exist in nature and trying to mimic that in our gardens makes a big change in the understanding why we will succeed or why we will have to work really, really hard on that late succession species in a very pioneer type of situation in a garden. For example, this late succession species, I don't know what you call them in the UK, we call them the snake bark maples multi-stem beautiful maples they are like hazels in the natural habitats in asia or in the eastern us 
they grow underneath the forest there. So that's an example of small multi-stem trees that hate to be in an exposed situation. Trees and gardens and certainly small urban gardens, people worry about if they're going to be able to have a tree in their garden. There seems to be a concern about planting trees around houses because it's always this concern about the roots. The roots are going to ruin the house and they're going to disrupt the, the, the house foundations. And that's not always the case. This goes back to choosing the right tree looking at the position of where the tree is actually planted around the house. I mean, I've got a really small garden. I mean, my garden is, the main part of it is 10 metres by 4 metres. So in old money, that's sort of 30 foot by 12 foot. And I've got about six small trees, straight large shrubs in my garden that are offering shelter, that are offering nectar source to, to pollinators, that are sh uh, offering shade for us birds can come in so it can be done it's just having the confidence to choose the right tree and and everybody will benefit the capacity for all these functions the ecosystem benefits we talked about earlier are connected to size and health a healthy tree but also larger tree have much bigger capacity compared to a smaller tree but then of course there is a group of trees that are very useful, small trees that are maybe between two and four meters tall. And there are amelanchier, of course, there are crabapple, marlows, a lot of pruners, of course, big share of maples. But there are also other trees like elangnus, elangnus angustifolia. It's a multi-stem. If you can't have an um, uh, olive tree, well, try the Russian olive, which is the common name here in Sweden for elangnus angustifolia, for example, a, a tough silvery tree heat and drought tolerant can take anything just to get a lot of sunlight. So th there is a big group of this in-between trees that could both be a single stem tree, but also this multi-stem tree as well. And one of the things that Henrik touched on there as well, in terms of trees and their capacity, we do have to remember that any tree, whether it's small or large, it does need to get to a certain level of maturity before it can actually start delivering those benefits to us. You have to look beyond just the aesthetic of what you want. That's the whole point of this. You have to look and see how can I add value into an environment. All the beautiful parks and gardens that we visit on a daily basis, they were planted hundreds of years ago. They planted them when they were quite young. And that's the whole point of the tree is that you actually gift it for a future generation. How amazing to think that we've sat under trees that Capability Brown planted and he had to just kind of give over that landscape and here we are enjoying it now. So don't be frightened about trees. They are fabulous beings. Like I said, you, you get to really love them. That was Arat and Henrik. The Essential Tree Selection Guide is out now, and it's a must-read. You can find a link on our show notes. That's all for now. So from me, Guy Barter, goodbye and thanks for listening. I'm walking down the path in my garden, and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, 
and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the Rhydon sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the Rhydon. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply. <laughs> 